This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Front Row on The Bigger Picture and I'm Sharmila Ganesan. 2020 has not been kind to our local arts industries with most shows, festivals and exhibitions having to either close down completely uh, or experiment by going digital. Um, and, you know, certainly in the interviews and discussions that we've been having here on the show this year, these challenges have sort of been a running theme. But for this final show of 2020... We thought we'd end on a hopeful note, um, which is not to say we're overlooking how tough this year has been, but um, we wanted to take this time to look at what we've learned and how we can move forward. Joining me for this conversation are three of our local arts practitioners, Bilkis Hijas, dance producer from Rimundahan, Tan Cherkian, producer with Instant Cafe Theatre Company, and Rupa Subramaniam, visual artist and arts organiser. Thank you everyone for joining me in this uh, final conversation for the year. I thought we could start off um, by getting each of you to talk a little bit about the things that you had planned for 2020 and how that changed. Uh, Maybe we can get CK to start? Yeah, uh, we started with um, having a plan to stage a collaboration between uh, uh, Japan, uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, that didn't work out, not because of COVID, but because of uh, some funding issues. Um, we quickly want to turn that into an outreach program we, where we actually try to make it um, still a staging, but in, in terms, uh, instead of a staging, it becomes a festival, an outreach, um, an outreach festival. But uh, due to COVID, it was being postponed. Um, another production of ours, which is a collaboration between uh, Instant Cafe Theatre and um, the Refugee Theatre Group, uh, a show called And Then Came Spring was also being postponed two times until now. Yeah, so that's basically uh, uh, what happened to our plan in 2020. Mm. Rupa, what are your thoughts? Um, so for my side, I definitely had a lot more shows planned out for Art Battle. And um, that is that one show that I cannot pivot online without rethinking the entire structure because the model works on interaction. It, it works on people, you know, rubbing their shoulders against each other and like sort of like, you know, feeling the chaos and feeling the excitement, right? So then how do I take an experience like that and deliver it online? Like mo- with most of my other projects, I kind of managed to do it. Um, because like with workshops, it's easier to organize. I wouldn't say it's it's easier, but it's still possible to organize online. Um, and with uh, with an event like Art Battle, it's just impossible. So that was very difficult for me, uh, despite having um, experience in the digital industry for so many years. Um, but besides that, I, I am really proud of uh, Banana Leaf and how that was executed this year because... Um, at the end of the day, I wanted to sort of create a space where uh, people can feel like they have other creatives to lean on each other, who understands their vision, who can empathize with their background. And that was something I thought in 2019, I did quite well in GMBB's space. Uh, but it was so that space. was a that was a physical exhibition, uh, a, a yes. sort of with with various Malaysian Indian artists, right? Yes. 
So um, that physical space itself was important because that was the meeting of minds that was happening in that space. So the conversation then relied on the different participants who were there um, and they shaped the conversations. So when we did it online um, uh, in our workshops, I'm glad despite um, the, the, um, you know, the, the lack of uh, physical encounter, you know, uh, that people could still connect emotionally and connect their minds um, in this workshop spaces. Um, and then I also released Antidote, which, um, to be honest, last year I had no idea how it was going to shape. I had a plan, but like the plans was like filled with like stumbling roadblocks and like every step of the way, I think I was like, uh, I, I felt I was failing quite miserably, right? And and that was something I did in Rimbun Dahan in 2000 and, uh, sorry, 2018. So it's taken me so long to actually figure out what model really works best for Antidote. And Antidote eventually, it, it, you know, I was ambitious and I thought I could do like a full feature-length documentary. And then I realized my resources just isn't going to allow me to do that. And so I had to work with what I have and re-strategize my resources, my time, um, the, the value of like other people's investment onto me as well. And I finally decided it was going to be sort of a web documentary, sort of a collage that's going to work online, you know. And that's a format I, I don't think so I would have arrived at last year. So that's, I think, a great gift that 2020 has brought in for me is that um, it's really pushed me to get creative about the output of my work. And Bilkis, what about you? What um, you know? What surprises or pivots did 2020 hold for you? Well, when we began the year, I was planning to have a tour of a contemporary dance production by a German choreographer, which performed in KL in November last year. We were supposed to go to three countries in March. And we also had performers from all over Southeast Asia and Europe from about 12 countries, I think. And two weeks before we were all supposed to depart for the first country, we I got the call from the Goethe Institute, who were our major sponsors, saying, no, we don't think this is a good idea. I mean, look at this, this, this virus coming and we're not sure about it. And at the time, I was totally dismissive. And I thought, ah, you know, we've got viruses all the time. You know, you're just being paranoid Germans and we can do this. We're, we're Southeast Asians. You know, we're very adaptable. And, you know, and I was quite miffed at the fact that after basically 18 months of work, our enormous project was was going to be cancelled. And of course, in retrospect, that was absolutely the best decision made because had we had people from 12 countries in Jakarta when everything blew up, you know, we would have really been in a lot of trouble. So it was the right decision. But at the time, of course, it was heartbreaking to me and of course, to all of the other performers as well. And I think this is one of the biggest problems has been that we have planned for these things so long in advance. And when they're cancelled or when they're postponed, sometimes it really is just a cancellation. You can't postpone things that have taken such a long time to prepare. And that opportunity which presented itself is never going to come again. So that's obviously been heartbreaking. But there have been many interesting developments that have come out of this situation. I'm not sure that I would gloss them as entirely positive, um, but certainly unexpected and have required some creative responses, I think. 
Mm. Now, certainly one of the things that I've been really taken and impressed and inspired by from the Malaysian arts industry is just how resilient they've been this year. So many people have been trying so many things, despite the fact that there hasn't been a lot of income in it for them, you know, but this push to continue creating art and and, and adapting to the digital medium in some way or the other. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, um, besides the things that you yourself have worked on, um, what are some of the things that you've seen or experienced this year that that struck out to you or, or you thought, wow, it, it's great that they did that or that this was out there in this year? Uh, personally, I... I... I didn't touch much about what we do as a company, but more like what we cancel and postpone before mm-hmm. this. Um, but talking about what other people do that I think is inspiring in a way, I think cloud theater is something that I'm, I I think as a company that we are quite grateful for. Um, I, um, it started as, as uh, a practitioners who want to actually try to bring back the theater experience to the audience and also to a certain extent, maybe theater makers as well. Uh, it, it kind of like provide a platform for, for us, especially. And I think for quite a lot of art practitioners as well, because I mean, um, yeah, we, 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 we do not equip ourselves with uh, digital a lot, I would say, as general. Yeah, uh, a lot of us actually kind of like uh, a stunt when this happened, because if what we can see is just digital at this moment, then how should we adopt or adapt and also pivot to it, right? Um, I think uh, Rupa mentioned some just now, right? How how she finds it quite difficult to to, to change some of the programs that she actually doing uh, into online. I think we also face the same, um, same problems. So to see them coming up with this and kind of like help us and help other practitioners to actually try to put, you know, uh, uh, migrate to, to digital platform. I think that's quite, yeah, inspiring. And it shows, like you say, Shamila, it shows resilience, you know. Um, yeah, it, it helps us a lot. And, and because of this, I think it makes us realize how important we are to look for new skills, new platform, new space. I'm not just talking about physical. I'm just talking about um, yeah, just get out of the silo and try to see what other people are doing, and and if if it fits what we 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 are we, we should learn. You know, I think mm. that's the biggest eye opener for for us. I actually think this would be a great time too for you to actually tell us some of the things that ICT has been doing, um, because cloud theaters has been a big part of that, right? Yeah, yeah. We we started with um, we started with a project called Zoom Para. Uh, basically, we stage. The, uh, the production para uh, online via Zoom live. So that actually started with the actors trying to, uh, they, they have their own rehearsals before this. They actually start small. They just want to do a, a reading. But when they invited Joe as the previous director for the show, when it was staged before this, so they decided to actually, hey, maybe it's good for us to actually stage this live. So it started as an experiment for us because of a lot of factors because we are not familiar with Zoom and all the actors are, that time was pure MCO lockdown that we cannot even go to each other places that freely. Um, and one of our actors is actually in Indonesia. So, so it's purely an experiment that we did. So we decided, okay, we need some help. So we actually get this cloud theater to help us to actually put this online. So we staged the show live, two shows in July. Uh, we 
we, we are happy with the response that we got, mainly because I think a lot of people are curious about watching something online live. It's not a recording, but this is live. And we learn a great deal of it, like, like um, the whole mode of rehearsing online, the whole uh, how to actually navigate things like, you know, stage design, lighting, rehearsals and everything. Um, but what, what Cloud Theatre helped us is actually, they help us a lot on the, um, on the ticket selling and also audience management portion. I think that's very important, right? I mean, we have a lot of solutions provided in our existing physical theatre scene, uh, but to do this online and having this portion be taken out from our worry, I think that helps a lot. Yeah, so, so that's an experiment that we did with them with a staging of a live performance. And then we decided to put some of our recordings that we of our previous show online. So, and yeah, we were very happy with the experiment that we did. And yeah, it, it actually made us realize that uh, to have a better digital competence, competency and ability is definitely a must, you know, whether we have to acquire ourselves or we have to work with a partner to do that. That's becoming a must. Mm. Yep. Rupa, what about in visual arts? What were some of the things that you saw, uh, some of the things that you saw people trying that you are kind of taking away from this year? I think in terms of resilience, um, even in visual arts, I would I would echo what um, CK has mentioned already. Um the support when it comes to digital is not something to take away lightly. Like just doing going live for a show, you need like a three team um, or four team to check your sound, to check your lighting, to check, you know, timing. And then, you know, suddenly halfway through something will go wrong and you have no idea. And you are in front of the camera and you're like, okay, do I look? Do I acknowledge this? Do I carry on? Like nothing is happening, right? So, and, and there's a lot of... Um, you know, sometimes your audience is patient, patient with you and sometimes they are not, right? This is, uh, we are all experimenting here and we have sometimes, most times I think we, we are walking and without any idea what we're doing. We just have a vision and we are, we are trying to slow cook our intuition to sort of work through this whole technology as well. So um, I think it's, um, it's very supportive to be in this community right now because I'm comparing my experience to the corporate world as well, right? And mm. there right now is like everyone's really chasing after the numbers and the KPI and like trying to make certain numbers meet. Where else now I'm in this community where, you know, even the clients I'm working for in the art scene are calling me and first checking out like, hey, can you put food on the table? And that's a realistic question to ask before talking about work. So humanity on its own is really prevailing in like I feel with the people that I'm working with because everyone's really checking up on each other, you know. And that for me is how any artist anywhere can survive is to know that you're supported, right? And every other um, sort of like arts in institution that I'm like closely connected to, they are striving in every way possible to find to give us additional resource and resource here doesn't necessarily mean funding or, or you know, um, money in a very literal sense, because if you don't know how to spend it um, wisely in today's age, that's also a wasted resource, right? But resource today means um, helping manage to go live, right? 
uh, helping manage to, if, if I'm working on um, an art project, someone else coming and contributing uh, video making skills, right? Or, or even helping someone to write a copy, um, looking through their copy. These are things that we, we take as such a simple thing, but it requires effort and attention and, and sort of like understanding that artist's bigger vision in order to contribute. Um, so I would say overall, that's what I'm observing, that people are really open and generous with their time to look through, you know, grant submissions, um, you know, to be like, like every time I put a project up and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm a visual artist, I'm not really a designer. So, you know, just sending it to a few designers to be like, hey, what do you think about this? And getting that feedback and moving forward. And everyone's invested in this without like hoping for, an outcome out of this. And that's beautiful, I think. Interesting hearing that from uh, Rupa, that now possibly the visual arts community is becoming less uh, finance oriented. It's sort of always <laughs> been that way in the dance community because we never make any money. So everybody's doing things for free all the time. Um, but I feel that in dance, I think the interesting shift that has come refers more to what CK was talking about in terms of developing digital competencies. I think there has been a great development of the ability of dancers to work for the camera and very much with the camera in mind. One of the major events of the year that I highlight would be Gura Angin, which is the online festival of arts, which was produced by Sutra, Sutra Foundation and Masakini Theatre, which you can still view for free on YouTube. And because they had quite extensive funding from the Ministry of Tourism and Culture, they were able to uh, mobilize some quite serious technology, cameras, lights uh, on this project, bringing in people to perform in either their indoor uh, studio and be recorded or in outdoor spaces. And I think that experience for a lot of dancers, certainly, especially dancers who aren't who don't work for TV, um, if they work for TV, then they may already have this experience um, of how to shoot things for a really sort of high production value event where you're not just shooting it once, you're shooting it multiple times, you're doing close-ups, you're doing wide shots. And the the effect of post-production as well, the things that can be done in post-production, um, the amount of you know, editing and special effects. Uh, I think that's useful for dancers to get a kind of hang of that uh, skill. I also think it's been a time when a lot of dancers have been able to pursue collaborations with other artists in a more meaningful way especially I think with filmmakers and also with musicians. One of the other examples I would pull out is a program by Kwangtung Dance Company called Marantas Awan, which you can also view for free on YouTube that they've been releasing in tranches throughout the year. And these are short videos and also short clips of, um, of photographs of dancers. And they've been working very closely with uh, filmmakers and in site specific in, in sites outside theatres. And I think that's also been the number three thing that's been most important for dancers, that dancers previously thought, oh, site-specific, dancing outside a theatre is just something that some people do and they do it for certain special occasions. And suddenly it's become something that everybody has to do because we have no choice. We can't have access to theatres. We only perhaps have access to our own living room. 
So we have had to adapt to this requirement of making dance either in very small spaces or dancing in places where we don't usually dance. And I think with Marantas um, Awan, you can see some very sensitive and interesting responses to these restrictions and also see how the vision of the artist still comes through. I think Kwangtung Dance Company, in many ways, this is sort of their moment. They, they are, uh, Amy Lynn's choreographic style has always been about loneliness and anxiety and um, separation within the crowd. And when you see these dance works that she's made for video now, those themes which um, might have made her an outlier before make her very much part of the mainstream now. And yet it's still a development of her own very particular vision. And I think that's been really beautiful to see. Well, we do need to take a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, I would like to carry this on and talk about how, what this means looking forward to 2021. I'm speaking with dance producer Bilkis Hijas, producer Tan Kyan, and visual artist and arts organiser Rupa Subramaniam. And we are talking about the Malaysian art scene in 2020, as well as um, what they're hoping for moving forward. So we'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Front Row on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Front Row on The Bigger Picture and I'm Sharmila Ganesan. I'm speaking with Bilkis Hijaz, who is a dance producer with Rimbundahan, Tan Cherkian, who is a producer with Instant Cafe Theatre Company, and Rupa Subramaniam, visual artist and arts organiser. We're looking back at 2020 as well as looking forward to what 2021 might hold. So on that note, I wanted to ask um, I wanted to ask you guys, and, and I know that this is sort of a a difficult question to answer at this point. How do you plan for 2021? Do you plan hoping that live performances or, or you know, proper exhibitions or festivals might become a thing? Do you plan for two different scenarios? What's going through your head at the moment? Um, the plan is not to have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that sounds like great advice for everyone. <laughs> I, I I really um, I think that was the core disappointment for last year and the core lesson from last year is that anything you think you have in your control is absolutely not in your um, you know control anymore, right? So for next year, I think um, really then keeping my calendar fluid, um, knowing that I have a few abstract ideas and visions that I want to work towards, but not focusing on the execution. Um, so I think, I feel, um, observing our scene, we've been, we, we have great ideas, but we've always been very focused on how it's been executed. And right now that's being removed from us, right? So you don't know if it's going to be a physical space or an online space anymore. Um, so I'm not thinking about how I'm going to put the idea out, but I'm just really focusing on the idea itself. How can I make this idea as accessible as possible? Simplify it to its core value, and how do I make this affordable for my audience? Um, that is, in a way, still kind to me, right? Um, and that's where this finance aspect also comes in. Mm. Um, to educate your audience that art isn't free, it has never been free, it requires effort. And um, how do I work towards um, encouraging my participants to be part of my process as well? Um, so 
then it means no longer working inside or uh, it means opening up your creative process to allow a lot more people in. Um, that means also a lot of trust. Um, and it also means experimenting very quickly, um, testing things out um, and being very, very open to failure. Um, and the faster you fail, I think the quicker you learn, the faster you adapt. And then you can revisit your ideas. Um, and somewhere in the middle of that failure, I think you will start finding your voice or start finding um, what you're meant to do in this particular time. Um, and just just hopefully guide uh, or trust in that compass that, you know, I'll, I'll get to where I need to get to. But yeah. I definitely want to get back to the question of finances after this. Um, but uh, Bilkis, what, um, you know, what is 2021 planning looking like for you? Yes, I think as Ruby says, it's very important to plan not to have a plan. Um, we, My Dance Alliance, which is the organization that supports dance in Malaysia, we were supposed to have our biannual My Dance Festival in October this year. Of course, that didn't happen. We then postponed it to March, April 2021, thinking, oh, yeah, you know, we'll all be out by then. It'll be fine. <laughs> and increasingly, that appears that that will, of course, not be the case. So I think, yeah, you've got to have two plans. You've got to have a plan of, well, what could we do if we are allowed to have face-to-face -face interactions and what can we do if we're not? Or just plan not to and really wholeheartedly embrace this new reality. I mean, I think what this whole experience has made many people understand is the kind of the precious and fragile nature of, of our reality, of what we thought to be a kind of unchangeable world where we would always be allowed to see each other and we would always be allowed to, to go to cinemas and go to theatres. And now it appears that all of that was essentially arbitrary mm. and all of these things can change at any time. So it, there is a great uncertainty that attaches to this, but I think there's also a great sense of, of freedom and uh, uh, in another way, a lack of limits. I, yeah, I think also what Ruby mentioned about simplifying to core values, I think also simplifying to particular intense uh, relationships rather than having a mass audience, thinking about um, dealing with one-on-one -on -one audiences. I'm particularly thinking about dealing with choreographers as individuals rather than bringing a whole host of choreographers together to have a festival and you know it's such a bun fight and you barely get to talk to anybody to have really focused uh, discussions and encounters with single choreographers to really find out what makes them tick what support we can provide and to kind of provide the magic of human encounter but in a very small scale and uh, that's what I'm looking forward to, I think, for 2021 as a sort of shift in, in outlook from the mass to the individual. Mm. CK, are you also embracing the no plan plan? Well, uh, I think the key word, I, I think we're just kind of like, you know, making fun of the words and everything, but um, it's be flexible, I guess, more agile. And that's, uh, how to say, it, it's kind of irony in a way, like, if you want to grow something, right, you need to make it bigger and get more people involved. But 
this pandemic and the fact that we have to have social distancing and everything, it makes everything become small. So the challenge is how to transfer this uh, from appearance, it seems small, to something big is is a challenge, right? So about the plan, yes, in a way that we can say the plan, plan to have no plan, but um, I think in in uh, Ruby mentioned something about you know um, before this everybody is so hung up about getting the work there out there, you know, producing something, something, uh, a show. Uh, a festival, something tangible at least that people can go and watch and experience personally. But I think this year we found something, um, I, I think all of us have been doing that, but it's just that it's not being highlighted enough. It's actually the process and also the conversation we have before we reach the end of the production or, or we stage something. And, and because of all this limitation this year, we find that some of the things that we did, for example, Para, for example, Nadira, the conversations that happen along the way and after what we did, it makes us think that, oh, wait, this is actually what we want to do all the time, right? Um, not to say that we lost focus before that, but because everybody's too focused on getting the show up there, but we forgot sometimes the conversation or the things that happen along the way and subsequent to that is the most important thing. Like for theatre, we always say that um, the theatre starts when the audience leaves the theatre. It's not when mm. the, the door closes, right? And this is very evident in our screening of Nadira. Initially, when we, we screen it, we kind of like a bit hesitant because we felt that it's a previous work that we have done before this and now we are putting it online is it still relevant you know do people can accept a recording especially before they did a live show all this consideration but what what happened was that along the way the the screening created a lot of conversations that make us realize that oh you know when we stage this this time these are the conversations you want to have so instead of planning for staging something or anything next year i think the we kind of like have a realization that we think what conversations we want to have next year. So it doesn't have to be in a production form. It sounds very airy-fairy, I know. But, but I think without that pressure of staging something or putting some work out there, we, we are able to look at different things now. So, so because of that, we also being encouraged to work with other people who might we never thought of working. Like for example, we work with the video uh, firming team, which before that, the whole purpose of firming is just for documentation. Mm. Now, because we might think of a possibility of having no audience if the MCO is not being, EMC or uh, the SOP is not being relaxed, then we might have to stage it online, right? Screen online. And because of that, we cannot do like what we did before. So the firm, firming team will come to tell us that, oh, um, how many cameras you need. So your stage design have to be like this. Your lighting had to be like this. So the, the, the notion that, you know, um, the collaboration, the real collaboration now comes in where all these stakeholders come in earlier, right? Before that, they come in last. They just come to our rehearsal, uh, 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 dress rehearsal and watch a few times and that's it. But now they are involved in the conversation. So they become a partner to a bigger Thing. And they are involved in not only the production itself, now they are asking us what the play is about, you know, because they want to know the story. So the investment is, is deeper, I would say.
So I think next year we are hoping to have more of this, um, and and being freer also help us to to change and because you can't like like the show that we are having in January, I'm still worried about the SOP. Uh, the numbers is climbing. I myself has a few scared of my friends that I met before this was diagnosed positive. So all these things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. agree. Plan not to have a plan. <laughs> and the last thing you want is to have your brand attached to a cluster, like art metal cluster. Knock on wood, don't even say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but I, I like I like that idea of what is the conversation we want to have. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's such a great way of creating anything, really. Um but I'm going to draw away from this philosophical side of it and go back to how do we pay for all of this? Um, but I think I want to widen that conversation a little bit and and in the spirit of looking forward. Um, looking forward like this, knowing what we know now, um, what would you say are some of the needs that need to be filled in the coming year? Um, you know, financially, yes, but specifically, what will those finances need to address? Do you guys have either uh, an idea or, or hope, even hopes in terms of what would what would work or what would be the most useful? Yeah, as I mentioned to Ruby's comment earlier, contemporary dance doesn't make a lot of money. <laughs> and actually, most of the people who are working in contemporary dance don't live on it. Even though they're working at a very high professional level, they always have to have another job in order to survive because the job, the artistic work doesn't pay for itself. And really, it doesn't really pay for itself in anywhere in the world. It's not that Malaysia is particularly unusual in this respect. So actually, I think our contemporary dance community has been reasonably resilient during this pandemic because of what was previously perceived to be its weakness, the fact that you couldn't live on it. Now, all the contemporary dancers are like, yeah, of course we couldn't live on it before. No, so cannot live on it. Same Actually, a lot of of, uh, practitioners, um, dancers definitely, but even um, more generally, the performing arts, that's something I've heard quite often. Um, It's it's sad in a way, but in another way, um, it's like, well, nothing has changed very much for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's made us more resilient. It's, you know, it's allowed us to to pivot in ways that we don't have to necessarily think about, oh, who's going to pay for this, but rather what would I like to do and, and what is my artistic curiosity and interest? I think that's very liberating. So I think in the long term, though, for dance, the main problem is the the same issue that it is really what I think is the bigger issue in society, which is education. So I read somewhere recently how Europe kept schools open but shut restaurants down, whereas we, of course, did the opposite. We kept restaurants open and we shut schools down. And I think in the long term, we are going to see the terrible effects of this on the generations who are suffering through not being able to have face-to-face school and the enormous impact that that's going to have, especially on people with less privilege and with fewer resources. And this is also an issue with dance because not 
many people outside dance may realize, but dance studios have been shut down and you are only allowed in dance studios to have one-on-one classes, which I think is sort of terribly unfair because gyms are allowed to open and gyms are allowed to have Zumba classes and group exercise classes, which are basically the same as dance classes. So this is really penalizing people who take dance very seriously, those people, i.e. dance teachers and dance studio owners who really do uh, get the majority of their income through their artistic practice, and also the training and the maintenance of fitness and abilities, skills of young dancers who are not able to access studios. And I think it's very sad, and I think that Ideally, the Majlis Kaslamatan Nagara would take this into account and think if you're going to allow gyms to do to operate, then we should also allow dance studios to operate under, of course, strict SOPs. Um, but dance studio owners can adjust to that. They cannot adjust in any meaningful way to only being allowed to have one-on-one classes. That's not a financially viable solution. And I think it really has to change. Mm. Rupa, what about, um, you know, in in the visual arts scene, what do you think are some of the most pressing needs in terms of finances? Yeah, I think um, primarily funding has come from grants um, as well as cooperation. So you could lean on either one side of it or derive from both, right? And right now, everybody is holding their money back. Um, So, and with grants, um, you also need to, it's a one-off, um, funding. It's not uh, sustainable. Um, and then once you're in it, you don't get it next for the next two years. So you can't really rely on art grants to support your career. Um, so with um, then if you look at yourself as a creative entrepreneur, um, then the skill here is to require to have multiple revenue income sources. Um, then you uh, don't just position, position yourself to like, you know, put your, all your eggs in one basket, right? I'm going to I'm gonna paint and I'm going to sell my paintings. That's the linear way about thinking about visual arts. And now without um, galleries authority in the same way as before, uh, we are now opening up the market to a much larger uh, space. Um, so I'm thinking, I really like um, uh, Penang Art District's uh, latest uh, program. So they have a program on innovation and creative entrepreneurship, um, which is great. They they are they are matching the skill sorts, the skill sets that you need and required to do a startup, um, to be an entrepreneur, and how can you um, match that to whatever you are building as an artist. Um, and most, I think, all these years, artists have had um, a sort of a like this is like oh you know you're commercializing my art and therefore I don't want to walk down this path. But right now, this is uh, a point of survival. Um, A very crude example would be like when, you know, um, taxi drivers and the existence of Grab, right? They were completely against the idea. But that's what the audience, or that's what your market is changing to. And and who are we as individuals to stop the shift? So thinking of your work in a way that allows participation from your audience means they then work as the community that supports your work. Um, So how do you build a community that understands their role in your process as well, uh, which then boils back down to education. 
um, and being very open with your creative process, right? So I'm seeing the successful artists who are constant in, in the visual arts um, are the ones that are the unorthodox uh, artists that has not been acknowledged by the previous gatekeepers. And I think the landscape is changing um, very quickly, very rapidly, and no one has a tab on it. And so I think it's it's very important as well when it comes to funding, it's not just the artists doing the homework, but gatekeepers themselves going on ground and understanding um, the organizations that they are investing in. Are you attending their events? Are you attending um, workshops and classes that they are out organizing? Besides just looking at a report that we're sending to them, um, for them to understand the real value that we as arts organizers are bringing to the table, right? Um, and these are things that you cannot measure with the number of likes or the number of like attendees that has come into your show. Like CK said, the real investment, the real conversation starts when the show ends. Um, so as a community, we need to figure out um, our scale of measurement is not based on um, how many people people attended your festival anymore. That's not the scale. Um, can we all agree to that and then figure out what are the next um, reporting metrics that we can look at and then have um, a table discussion with all people involved, not just art organizers, art organizers and managers like us, but like where the funding is coming from. And that would eventually bring, you know, more holistic solutions rather than a one-sided, top-down approach um, to how we look at money. I really like this idea of looking at arts making um, with the community surrounding it because that's something I've noticed this year in particular. Whether we're talking about um, artists creating Patreon accounts or, or, or you know using Instagram to kind of create a community of followers who in, enjoy or appreciate the same kinds of works, um, I really think it's it's a sense of community, not just within the arts community, but a community around the arts community um, that has in many ways kept this is going. Um, I saw the same with uh, some of um, ICT's uh, streamed shows as well, as well as a couple of other streamed shows that I've watched where um, it's really that sense of getting together, having the little chat in the side. So I, I like that community-driven idea of, of um, looking at arts making. Um, CK, what about you? What do, what do you think would be some of the most um, pressing needs or the things that need to be addressed when it comes to the coming year? Um, yeah, I think all say I agree. And to do just add on, I think there are two things that we're talking here. One is the financial part, right? Yeah. On the practitioner side, on the artist side, how how we can actually create an environment um, or an ecosystem for them to keep on creating and making arts and engaging with community. So um, yeah, um, having a different kind of um, metrics or whatever. Uh, you know, to, to change the shift from just looking at products and KPIs to justify the grants, all these, I mean, we are not the first person who say this. It's, it's been repeated again and again. But again, I would like to bring another thing, like for example, um, um, just now, uh, Bilkis mentioned a bit about education. And yeah, it's super important for that because we are trying to reach a bit of community. We try to reach audience. But Next year, we are going to use more digital medium. But is our audience ready for it? I mean, we are happy that, you know, what ICT did this year uh, is overwhelming response from our audience who are able, but they are only a group of people who actually have access to, to internet, to Wi-Fi, 
yeah so how about those who are not right and and yeah we cannot run away from that already now and and this is not just uh motec or or kkmm or whoever is actually the whole country's focus on it to to because it i don't know um um uh, maybe this story is not important but like i read somewhere saying that an old lady tried to drive a car and she approached somebody who is the writer of the post and she was so so anxious and looking to her like like life and death situation but it just turned out that she she just do not know do not have the apps to pay car park <laughs> yes i i i completely so, understand it's a it's a problem that we don't see until you know yeah. someone who goes through it yeah so so you know we read about students you know now we are talking about internet right but there are students who doesn't even have teachers coming to their class so what i'm looking for next year backup government <laughs> <laughs> sorry i mean yeah not just is is at a whole not 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 just in arts is so many things right Yeah, yeah so, I think the I I absolutely think that um it is important to look at the arts as part of all of these other problems. Um right. when we did a show focused on um Sabah and Sarawak and the challenges the arts have been having this year, a lot of it just came down to g- digital connectivity. Um yes. you know, the being able to get them to be to do their shows online means you have to have stable internet at the very least. Yep, yep. So, yeah. Do that. <laughs> well, I think that is a great note to end this on. Thank you so much, everyone. Happy New Year, and thank you so much for being part of this conversation with me. Happy Thanks, New Year! Shabila. Happy New Happy Year! New thank, Year. You. thank you. I've been thank speaking you. with Bilkis Hijaz, dance producer from Rimbundahan, Tan Cherkian, who is a producer with Instant Cafe Theatre Company, and Rupa Subramaniam, visual artist and arts organizer. And we've been uh, reflecting in our own ways on 2020 in terms of the Malaysian arts scene, as well as discussing what 2021 might hold. If you've missed any part of this interview or any previous front row segments, you can download the podcasts on bfm.my, on our BFM app. Or Or on Spotify. Happy New Year, everyone! And here's wishing for a better 2021 for us all. You've been listening to Front Row on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the Business Station.